Let's open the Scriptures together to read from the book of Ruth. We're reading from Ruth because she is the next lady mentioned in the family tree of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. And we've been working our way through these various sisters in that list. And the name Ruth comes up. And also we're going to pay attention to Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, because the Lord was busy in both their lives and both had a place in the family tree of Christ. So let's read Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. 
I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, we don't have time to read the whole book, but hopefully you know the story of Ruth. If not, you can read it later today. We're going to move to chapter 4. Boaz is, um, comes up in between chapter 1 and 4, and Boaz discovers he is actually a near relative to Ruth, and Boaz acts on her behalf and on Naomi's behalf, and eventually she becomes his wife. We're going to pick it up at 4 verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. We find our text this afternoon in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. We're looking at verse 5b in particular. So we've been dealing with some of the some of the ladies in this family tree. So verse 5, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And that'll be our focus. It'll be Ruth and then with her, Naomi. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, what is grace? It's one of those words we use a lot. We know that grace is a good thing. We know that grace is a good word, but what is it really? If you had to describe what grace is to someone who was not a Christian, never heard the concept, how would you describe grace? As we've been seeing in the other sermons on this family tree, grace is an important theme in this whole genealogy. Matthew uses this family tree to prepare us for the birth of our Lord and Savior, and the various stories of the ladies and of the men help us to understand our Savior better. The ladies in the line of the Messiah don't only open up the way for the physical birth of Christ, they certainly are used for that, but 
God's work in their personal lives already shows us what the Messiah came to do. Tamar and Rahab's stories, we've seen, show us God's work of helping the helpless, Tamar, and converting an enemy, Rahab. That was the particular grace they experienced on account of the Messiah. And now Ruth's story and with her Naomi show another side. They show, let's say, more fully what the saving work of Christ does for people, what it looks like. They show what grace feels like. And so I proclaim to you this Word of God, using that as a question, what does God's grace feel like? What does God's grace feel like? And we'll see that it feels like belonging. That's our first point. It feels like belonging, and it feels like happiness, our second point. Well, the story of Ruth in Scripture doesn't actually begin with the person of Ruth, but rather with a small family from the tribe of Judah. A family decides to move out of Judah for a while. In the opening verse of the book, we read simply that there was a famine in the land, and a man and his wife, together with their two sons, they decide to move out of the land for a while to a neighboring country, the land of Moab. It's in that land, much later in the story, that one of the boys marries Ruth, a Moabite lady. Now, that all sounds, when you, when you read the opening verses of Ruth, it all sounds kind of normal. A family is in hard circumstances, and they do what they had to do to survive. It's too bad they have to leave their homeland, but at least they can make ends meet. At least now they can put bread on the table in Moab. It's a perfectly expected thing to do. Anybody else from any other country would have done the same thing. And yet, brothers and sisters, that's exactly the point. This is not just another family from another country. And there should be a little flag raised in our mind when we see that it's a, a family from Judah that leaves its property and mo moves on to Moab. This is a family that belongs to the Lord God, that is in covenant with the Lord. This is a family who has been given an inheritance in the promised land. Remember all the, the trouble that the Lord had gone through to bring Israel into the promised land. They had a stake there. They had a, a, a property there that belonged to them as a gift from God, and that was a holy land. It was a holy property. For this, for, for Elimelech and, and his wife to, to leave their God-given land in Israel, that was not a normal thing, nor was it the right thing. You see, the decision of this couple to, lead, uh, to leave Israel and head into Moab, it reflects the larger, very poor spiritual condition of Israel as a whole. This is like a microcosm. These were not good days for God's people. The opening verse tells us that Ruth, uh, or this whole story, happens when the judges ruled. Well, you know the book of Judges right? You know what 
went down in the time period of the judges. It doesn't take you very long to read through the judges to find out how miserable and how dark a time that was. It was a period of constant covenant breaking on Israel's part. It was a cycle, disobedience, punishment from God, hardship for the people, crying out to God, God exercising mercy through raising up a judge, and then it was repeat. Ad nauseum, cycle after cycle after cycle. The refrain of the book of Judges says it all. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's how things were in Israel. That's what's going on in the book of Ruth at the beginning. It's this pattern of covenant breaking that explains the presence of a famine that we read about, verse 1. Canaan, you know, was, was famous for being a land flowing with milk and honey. That was a way to say it was a land flowing with, with food aplenty. There was always bountiful crops. There, were always, there was always fruit on the trees. But here, in the days of the judges, we discovered there was not enough food for Elimelech to feed his family and presumably for others to feed their families. How did that come about? Well, it's the Lord's hand. The Lord had warned through Moses that He would do this kind of thing, and He mentions in Leviticus 26, uh, famine in particular, that He would shut the sky to rain and He would make the earth below them like iron so that it would yield no crops. If the people didn't obey Him, didn't walk with Him in faith, God would bring that kind of punishment over Him, and that's what He does also in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the name of the town means house of bread. You call a town the house of bread because in the area, bread was plentiful. This was the house of plenty. If any place in the land of Canaan would have food, it would surely be in Bethlehem. But the house of bread, the house of plenty, had become the house of empty because the curse of God was upon them. So that's the situation you see as the book opens. What does Elimelech do? A man from the leading tribe of Judah. Does Elimelech sit down in a heap of ashes like the righteous Job and plead upon the mercy of the Lord? Does Elimelech call upon his fellow countrymen to throw aside their idols and give their hearts fully to their covenant God? Does Elimelech spiritually fight for the covenant rights of his God? No. Elimelech is concerned only for himself, for his own family, so he leaves. He leaves behind his people. He leaves behind his heritage. He leaves behind the tabernacle. That was the place where the Lord could be worshipped, the only place on earth where there could be proper worship. He leaves all that behind, and he takes off for the neighboring land, which is, by the way, chock full of false gods and idols. Elimelech and Naomi did what was right in their own eyes. This is the book of Judges in a microcosm. And when they exit Israel, they don't just go to any land, they go to Moab. 
the Moabites were as wicked a people as the Canaanites were. Moabites were the offspring, you'll recall, of the incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. Out of them came a people that later on as a nation hired Balaam to curse and destroy Israel. Moab was later still the nation who sent their women to entice the young men of Israel into sexual sin, Numbers 25, into worshiping the Baal of Peor, and many of them fell. Moab had declared itself to be a sworn enemy of Israel. They had shown nothing but hostility toward Yahweh and his people. The Lord had even commanded Moses or through Moses, that the Moabites could not enter the assembly of the Lord even to the 10th generation, Deuteronomy 23, because of their wickedness and because of their hatred toward Israel. So now Elimelech, son of Judah, son of Abraham, takes his wife and his family, and he goes to live among these people. And he even dares to allow his wives to take Moabite women, uh, his sons to take Moabite women for their wives, as wives. So what we have here in this family of Elimelech is just a little picture of how rebellious and self-serving God's people, the church, had become in those days. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. This is where Ruth comes into the picture. It's into this disobedient, weak-willed nation and into this particular disobedient and weak-willed family that Ruth the Moabite marries. What sort of witness to the one true God do you suppose she would have received from her new family? from her in-laws. Does this sound like a family that would have the worship of Yahweh as their number one priority? That the law of the Lord would be upon their hearts and lips? Would they have readily explained that their God had brought the famine upon the land of Israel because of Israel's sin and that they were waiting and praying for the repentance of the people and they were trying to, to lead that themselves? Or would Ruth be left to think some God, this Yahweh, is letting his own people go hungry in their land? So the Lord's curse is over the nation back home, but the Lord's curse extends also into disobedient Elimelech's family. For both, we discover both Naomi and her two daughters-in-law are soon widowed and in sorrow. Elimelech had come to Moab seeking prosperity. The whole thing ends in disaster. Meanwhile, Naomi has heard that the Lord has visited his people, meaning that he provided food again in Bethlehem, and so she makes plans in her poverty because widows were nothing but poor. Now there's three of them. She makes plans to go back. Her daughters-in-law are quite loyal to her and want to go with her, but Naomi tries to talk them out of it. She even encourages them to return to their gods in Moab. I wonder, brothers and sisters, if you could think of a more discouraging witness 
to the one true God. Then to urge your family members to go back into heathendom. Go back, Ruth. Go back, Orpah, to your gods. Naomi makes it seem as if it's an equal choice. You, if you come with me, you could worship Yahweh. That's the God of Israel. But you could go back and serve your own gods, and that'll actually be better for you. It'll be better for all of us that way. You go your way, I'll go mine. Naomi would, be, would fit right at home in our very cynical 21st century society, wouldn't she? You have your God, I'll have mine. Go your way. So, with all of that background and context, does it not boggle your mind how Ruth responds to Naomi, verse 16 of chapter 1? She says to her mother-in-law, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. What is this from Ruth but a cry for salvation? out of a heart that's filled with faith in this Yahweh. Against all odds and against anybody's calculation or hopes, this Ruth of Moab, that perverted nation of Yahweh haters, married into a weak and faithless family of Judah, she turns out to be a child of God with a strength of faith that you couldn't find anywhere in Israel. What can this be in Ruth's life but the mighty, the surprising, the unexpected work of God's saving grace? This is a picture of the kind of salvation that Jesus Christ will bring. Ruth, the Moabite, Moabite test, she's brought in, she's given a place in Israel. As a Moabite, she had been excluded from salvation because of the rebellion of her ancestors, but by grace, she is now included. Ruth belongs. That's what grace feels like, brothers and sisters. It feels like I belong among God's people. It feels like you've come home she didn't belong in Moab. She didn't belong with the idols of the Moabites. She belonged with the Lord and His people. That's the kind of thing the Lord Jesus does for His chosen ones over and over again. He makes room for those who have no place. He brings in those who were once on the outside. The Roman centurion, He did it in His earthly ministry. The Canaanite woman who begged to have her daughter healed the lepers who could only watch from afar and, and beg for cleansing. The Lord Jesus brings them all in. The woman whose bleeding lasted 12 years, and this Ruth too, a widow, a barren widow, 
And you know what? All of us too. All of us too. Aren't we outsiders? By nature? Are not we by nature strangers to God and His family? We can go right back to Abraham. Abraham, the father of all believers, was he not an outsider to God, worshiping the moon god there in Ur when the Lord called him? Many of us have been born and raised in the church. Thank God for that. What a blessing. But by nature, by birth, each of us is a rebellious sinner who of ourselves do not belong in God's company, but Christ has changed that. God has changed that. His grace has changed that. You and I, whatever our ethnic background, whatever nationality, we are outsiders who have received a place within His church. You're Ruth. I'm Ruth. But here, you and I, with all the other Ruths, are at home. Let's make sure that we help each other feel at home. Let's not think of people that are new to the faith or people from different backgrounds. Let's not think of them. Let's not speak of them as outsiders. Let's not think of ourselves as those who've been here longer and maybe grown up in the church. Let's not think of ourselves as insiders. This congregation is not an island community that belongs to us where strangers are never made to feel like they're natives. No. This is the church of the living God. And everyone that is brought in becomes a native, becomes a son, becomes a daughter. Every member, old or new, weak or strong, Male or female, whether you're from Europe or Asia or Africa or North America or wherever, every single one is precious to the Savior and has an equal place here in His flock. You belong. I belong. We all belong. By the prompting of Christ's Spirit, Ruth wanted to belong. She cries out for that, and by grace, the Lord made her belong. Over the course of time, He turned this barren widow into the loved wife of Boaz, and He turned her into a fruitful mother in Israel. She who came to trust the Lord and expected nothing for herself found in the end that the Lord gave her everything and more. Food, shelter, and the rest of the story a spouse, a child, a home, a people, a place in the family of God, salvation, the full package. Grace feels like belonging, like you've come home. It also feels like happiness, as the Lord shows us through Naomi. For Naomi was not a happy camper. 
Naomi had become a very bitter woman. Ten years earlier, she had left her home in Judah with a young and vibrant family, a healthy husband, two boys. But over those ten years, her whole world turned upside down. First, her husband died. What a shock and a sorrow that must have been for her. But at, the, at that moment, at least she had her two boys to support her, and those sons would have grown up to become young men, and there was hope then that they could raise up a family around her and provide that support, and they would live life together. So she would have been quite happy the day that Malon and Kilion each married a girl. Oh, maybe she thought, ah, it's too bad they, you know, that they had to marry Moabite women, but not so ideal. But at least they had brides. Now they could expect kids. So on their wedding days, the future was looking okay for Naomi. Only that ray of sunshine, too, disappeared into a very menacing darkness when both of her sons died. And neither one of them had an, a child in their marriages. And when she stands back and thinks about the whole picture, she almost can't believe what's happened. A few years earlier, she'd had it all. A husband and two sons, now she's got nothing. Actually, worse than nothing, for she's been left with two daughters-in-law, the burden of two widows, childless daughters-in-law. No wonder she's eager to send them home. To care for one widow herself would have been very arduous. She would have had to beg somehow or another. So Naomi has become miserable. She, she wants to be on her own. She knows that it will be difficult to feed one mouth, let alone three, and so she wants to go back to her home alone. And even when Ruth professes loyalty to, to her and, and professes faith in Israel's God, this doesn't change Naomi's feeling that much. Naomi is despondent. She's morose. She's depressed. She's, she's even bitter. She says that of herself. That's why she says to the women of Bethlehem in, in 1 verse 20, don't call me Naomi. Naomi, that name, it means pleasant. She says, don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara. Because that means bitter. That's what the Lord Almighty, she says, has done. He has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She, she blames the Lord for her bitter circumstances. Can you relate to that? This is a covenant child, same as us, a member of the church who has become bitter because of the circumstances of her life that she knows the Lord has brought about. She has developed a massive chip on her shoulder. And in her chip carrying, she blames God for her troubles. You ever felt that way? When life delivers a blow Sometimes the first person we question is God. God, why are you letting this happen? Why are you doing this to me? All that Naomi can think about is this nasty life 
that she's been given, how hard done by she's been. And off she goes to her impoverished farmhouse under a rain cloud of depression with dark thoughts about her punishing covenant God with no hope that it's going to change, with no desire to trust in God, no desire to wait upon the Lord for better days ahead. All she is is one big Eeyore heading back home. Do you see, brothers and sisters, how Naomi robs herself of confidence and comfort by keeping her bitterness? We fall into the same trap when we lay the blame for our troubles at the Lord's feet and do nothing else but that. Should we not rather begin by asking ourselves a few questions? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that every misfortune we experience is the direct result of a personal sin of our own. That hard times automatically mean we've committed some sin. But I am saying because the Bible says it here in Ruth and elsewhere, that it could be that way. And so we need to start, when we have troubles in our life, we need to start always with humble self-examination. Have I done something to provoke the Lord's anger? Could the Lord be disciplining me? Because He does discipline for sin. Could he be disciplining me for something I've done wrong? Am I currently being blind to something in my life? Have I been living faithfully in his covenant? Have I honored his commandments? Or have I been doing my own thing? And have I been harboring sin in my life? Just think, if, if Naomi had asked those questions of herself, she would not have been led to bitterness but she would have been led to repentance and joy. The decision to move to Moab in the midst of famine, the giving of sons in marriage to Moabite women, those were not decisions of trust in the Lord, but decisions to run away from the Lord, decisions to try and live successfully on their own as a couple with their children. Naomi and Elimelech, they had tried to forge their own happiness, but all they ended up with was a chafing and a haunting bitterness. So Naomi comes home a bitter woman, a bitter covenant child. What's the Lord going to do with a covenant child like that? Well, one thing He doesn't do is cast her aside. The salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ is enough to include a Moabite woman and to restore an embittered Israelite. For when she returns to Bethlehem, it isn't long before the Lord lifts the lid of her heart and begins to pour in blessing when she wasn't even looking for it. She sends Ruth out to glean one day. Ruth returns home from gleaning with way more food than was expected. She's even got some leftovers from a meal that was provided for her by the owner of the field, unheard of. 
And when Naomi inquires as to who this kind farmer was, she discovers that it is no one less than Boaz, a near relative, and she almost can't believe it. She starts to realize the importance of this act of kindness when she tells Ruth in chapter 2 that Boaz is one of our kinsmen redeemers. She's starting to see God at work. When she was in her bitterness, she had forgotten about the Lord's provision in the law given through Moses that the poor in Israel should not remain poor that close family members should assist their poorer family members with restoration of land that had to be sold off in debt. God commanded that, that family members with means and ability should redeem such a relative living in slavery or poverty, and also that the widows should be married and the deceased family line carried on. That's all there in the, in the laws of Moses. We saw that a few weeks ago. When the, in the family of Judah and Tamar, God had provided for, God had even commanded that, that grace was to flow from, from the, those who had experienced blessings down to those who were experiencing impoverishment. But Naomi had lost sight of that. She'd lost all hope. She was blinded to any such redemption by her tears and her bitterness until the Lord used Ruth and Boaz to open those eyes again. You see, brothers and sisters, bitterness, that's what it does. It, it blinds us. It causes us to stop trusting in the Lord, stop waiting and, and relying upon His promises. It, it basically cuts the oxygen to our faith. When we let our hearts become bitter, we resign ourselves to a life of misery. We come to expect misery. We can even resist efforts to change because we're just so ticked off that things didn't work the way that we thought they should work, the way we wanted them to work, the way we had planned them to work. Our pride is offended that our plans for happiness and fulfillment have been dashed to the ground. We've been treated so unjustly, we think, and we're going to stay ticked off in our hearts, we say, we're going to stay bitter, we're going to stay down in the mud, rather than giving over our hearts to the Lord, rather than repenting of our self-willed way. Brothers and sisters, let us open our eyes to the, the foolishness of bitterness. Who are you hurting but yourself? Where did it get Naomi? bitter in Bethlehem until the Spirit of Christ intervened. Let Christ intervene in your life today if bitterness has its hold. His help is very real for His people. This Christmas child that we're, we're working up to in the family tree, this Christmas child has been born and, of course, did all of his work, he now reigns in heaven above as supreme king. He has all the power to change. His father gave him that power. He has all the power to bring relief where it's needed, to bring restoration to your life, to bring grace into your life. Look to him. Keep looking to the Lord Jesus. See how he loves you. Remember, 
We saw it this morning, how he sacrificed his life for you, you and me, sinners, and then let us love him in return. We've not been hard done by. We have been loved fully and completely in Christ Jesus. Let him turn your bitterness into blessing, just like he made Naomi a blessed mother again. I wondered if you noticed that in chapter 4, verse 16. It's Ruth who gives birth, right? Now listen to what it says in verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. A son has been born to Naomi. Boaz had done the good work of playing the role of kinsman redeemer, not just for the land of Elimelech, but for the line of Elimelech. In pursuit of her own happiness ten years earlier, Naomi had gone away full but came back empty. But now God, in pursuit of his own glory, reaches out and makes the bitter woman full of blessing. Blessing totally undeserved. That too is what grace feels like. Undeserved blessing, happiness. Naomi's heart is softened. Naomi's heart is changed as she holds her grandson on her lap. And in the end, she's a picture of a, a converted child, someone who had gone from embittered covenant child to one who is now filled with joy and blessing. She is that boy, that, that buoy that just bobs up to the surface again by grace. This joy, this happiness is for you and me too, brothers and sisters, even as we saw this morning. This joy, it becomes ours through repentance. When you come face to face with your own sins, with how you and I have offended God's majesty in countless ways, when, when you give thought to that, with how we deserve punishment and eternal death and then realize that God has washed away your sin all your guilt in the blood of his only begotten son and that he's replaced our guilt with his peace that he gives us friendship in everlasting life what can we feel but happiness even through tears when Christ Jesus assures us that all the hardships of this life will fade away in the glory of the next life. When he says, as Paul does in Romans 8, they're not even worth comparing all the troubles. And there's so many, right? Not even worth comparing with the wonder that's coming. When he assures us that he himself will be there to dry all our tears, what can we feel but comfort and joy even in the dark days. That's what grace feels like. Belonging and happiness, joy. Amen.